turn to somebody. I know this is uncomfortable, but turn to somebody and say, God is holy. Now, turn to somebody and say, you are holy. Glinda, you are holy. John, you are holy. How many of us know that we serve a holy God? Yeah. But He's called us to holiness as well. He's called us to that standard as well. Let me open with this. In a hospital, cleanliness is very important. In fact, the closer you get to the operating room, the more important cleanliness becomes. Doctors in an operating room are very concerned that the scalpel not only is not dirty, but that it is not even dusty. Because the smallest amount of impurity contaminates the procedure. Great effort is made to sterilize the equipment so that all impurity is removed and no infection sets in. If human doctors go through great detail in an operating room to make sure that the environment is totally free from contamination, then it ought shock us not that God Himself must function in an atmosphere of perfection. If human doctors recognize that you can't do surgery with contaminated devices, then it should not make us too upset that God can't do the surgery on our lives that He wants to do without sterilizing our lives first. Amen? Check out Leviticus 11, verse 45. God says, I'm the Lord. That would be enough. Those words, if God were to show up, which He's here anyway, right? He's present. But if He were to stand before you and say, for I am the Lord, I think I'd drop to my knees. But He goes on and says, I am the Lord who brought you. I did this, the Lord says. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. What does Egypt represent? Bondage and sin. And the Lord delivered us from that. I brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, because of that, because I am holy, and because I did that for you, you shall be holy. Because I am holy. 2 Corinthians, that's the Old Testament, Leviticus, and now in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 says similarly, Therefore, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of this incredible God that we serve. Amen? So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a little review. I always think it's good to review. And then we're going to read our text. And then we're going to take a detour. And then we're going to hit our text. And then we're going to put it all together in a wonderful, wonderful closing picture. Okay? So let's review. As you recall, there are three returns. God's people were exiled to Babylon because of their sin, because of their unholiness. And so He exiles them to Babylon. And there was three different deportations to Babylon. And then there's three returns. And we've already gone through phase one, Ezra one through six. And now we're in Ezra eight. We're in phase two, the second return. And then, of course, when we get to Nehemiah, after we hit Ephesians, we'll come back to Nehemiah. That will be the third return from Babylonian captivity. 
And then we have a timeline that we've looked at many times before. And those first three entries on the top, 605 and 597 and 586 B.C., we see the first, the second, and the third deportation of God's people because they broke covenant. They were walking and living unholy lives. And then God starts to restore because it's what He does. He restores and He restores and He restores. However long it takes, however many phases it takes, He restores. And so in 537, that's the first return. And then in 458, towards the bottom, that's the second return, Ezra 7 through 10. And then a third return. And so if you go from the top of that list down to the bottom, I think that's 161 years that God is trying to rework holiness back into His people. In Ezra, in chapter 7, we're finally introduced to Ezra. Ezra has 10 chapters. It's not until chapter 7 that we get introduced to our main character, if you will. Ezra. And then we looked at verse 10 of Ezra chapter 7 as a, as a key verse for all of Ezra. And verse 10 of, of chapter 7 says that Ezra had set his heart to study God's law and to practice it and to what? To teach it. Set his heart to study God's law and to practice it and to teach it. We also saw in chapter 7 how the Persian king, Artaxerxes, granted Ezra all that he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. So the king granted all that Ezra asked for, for his journey. In fact, we see this faithful hand of God three times in chapter 7 of Ezra. But we also see it three times in chapter 8 of Ezra. And we're reminded that the faithful hand of God is upon those that are faithful to His Word. The faithful hand of our God is upon those of us who are faithful to His Word. Church, the faithful hand of our God is upon those of you who are faithful to His Word. Last week in Ezra chapter 8, we did verses 1 through 23, we looked at three different stanzas, if you recall. The the first stanza was a list of movers, those people that went back with Ezra to Jerusalem. But when Ezra had gathered at the river by Ahava, he realized there was no Levites because you can't have a community of God without the Word of God. And so he's like, we need Levites. And so he realized that there was a lack of ministers. And so he got some Levites to go on the journey with them. And then we saw a load of maturity last week where they fasted and prayed and sought the heart of God and God's protection before they took one step on that journey. They went before the Lord and asked for prayer and protection. And so we're gradually seeing the holiness of God's people being reestablished, as I've already mentioned. We've also shown this as well, that there's, there's the restoration of four things through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that God is all about restoration. So He restored the temple and that was finished in Ezra 6. And now He's restoring the community. And then when we get to Nehemiah, he'll restore the city of Jerusalem and then, of course, his covenant with his people because our God is a God of restoration. And these four areas that are being restored are being restored according to the Word of God. God's people were exiled. Listen, they were exiled because although claiming to follow and serve a holy God, they were not doing so in a holy manner. They were not doing so according to God's Word. And so... That's where we're at in our text today. Ezra's path is now clear. And they're ready to return. Let's pray. God, You 
are indeed a holy God. You have indeed delivered us from Egypt and the sin and the bondage that we were in. But you have also indeed called us to a life of holiness. But we can't do that on our own. Lord, we need you so desperately. Holy Spirit, continue to mold us and shape us into vessels of holiness for your kingdom's sake. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. So turn to Ezra chapter 8. We're going to finish chapter 8. We're in verses 24 through 36, the end of Ezra. Ezra 8, starting in verse 24. I'm so excited. Ezra 24, chapter 8, verse 24. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and with them ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, the utensils, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present there had offered. And thus I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver utensils worth another 100 talents and 100 talents of gold and 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks and two utensils of fine, shiny bronze, precious as gold. And then I said to them, You are holy. You, priests and Levites, you are holy to the Lord and the utensils are holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to God. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests, before the Levites and the heads of the fathers' households once you get to Jerusalem in the chamber of the house of God. So the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and the gold and the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem. So then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem And the hand of our God was over us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes along the way. And thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there for three days. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. Everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings. They worshipped God. They offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for the twelve nations of Israel. Ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and then twelve male goats for a sin offering, also to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. All as a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps and the governors in the province. And they supported the people and the house of God. So, we did a review. We read the text. And now we're going to do a detour. I want to talk a little bit more about this idea, this concept of holiness. Holiness is the chief attribute of our God. And... Holiness is the chief attribute of our God and a quality to be developed amongst His people. It's a chief attribute of God, but it's a quality to be developed amongst you and me. So here's a really, really hard question. Are you living on a quest, 
on a mission, a pursuit, an expedition, if you will, for holiness? Mm. Is that not a great question? Are you living on a quest, a mission, a pursuit, an expedition for holiness? Because if you're not on a pursuit or an expedition for holiness, then what are you on a pursuit and expedition for? Something will fill that blank. If not for holiness, then for what? So here's the deal. The Lord is always at work. The Lord is always at work recalibrating you and me to understand and pursue holiness. He loves us that much. Because we can't be in fellowship with God without holiness. It's why Christ died for us. So that we can be seen as holy before a holy and righteous God. So He's always at work recalibrating you, recalibrating me to understand and pursue holiness. Holy or holiness occurs in the Bible more than 900 times. Must be important. The primary Old Testament word for holiness means to cut or to separate. God is completely separate from us. He's completely holy compared to us because He's perfect. It's a separation from what is unclean and a consecration or a dedication to what is pure. Unclean, away from that, separate from that, and dedicate to what is clean. And it's where we get the word repent from, to quit going this direction towards impurity and to turn around and go back towards purity. That's why holiness requires repentance. And so let me ask you this. <laughs> if we were to check under the hood, you know that expression, right? Car looks great on the outside, and we pop the hood and we go, ooh, not so good. If we were to check under the holy hood of your lives, would it reveal that you are pursuing a life of holiness? It's a great question for us, isn't it? And if you're not, what's your game plan for that? Because that's, that's the role of the church, no? If we can't pull up the hood and say, it's jacked up, man. Some things are just a little bit haywire. Popping the hood of holiness. We're here. That's what we're here for. That's what the church is here for, to say, no problem, we're going to get this all cleaned up. Because if we can't do that in the church, where can we do that? If we can't do that here, let's just close the doors. Let me go watch the game four of the Stanley Cup. It's not till tomorrow night, but you get my point. Sometimes the, the hood of holiness, when it's popped, it doesn't look so good. But that's what the church is for. It's what we, it's what we gather for, so that we can continue to pursue holiness. Holiness, as applied to God, signifies His transcendence over creation and the absolute moral perfection of His character. That's our God. God's holiness means that He is separate from all that is evil and all that is defiled. His holiness is wonderfully expressed in Psalm 99. Let's go there. Psalm 99. Go a little to your right into the book of Psalms. And let's go to Psalm 99. Psalm 99, starting at verse 1. The Lord 
reigns. <laughs> Let the peoples tremble. When you understand the holiness of God, it should cause us to tremble on some level. When I'm in here worshiping with you, I feel like this. I want to drop to my knees. And arguably on some level, I don't really care what you think, but I just don't want it to be awkward for anybody. But you get my point? It's like, what's wrong with Pastor Mark? I'm trembling before the Lord. I'm Psalm 99 in it, folks. I want to do that. But I just don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the King loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness amongst your people, Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool because holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among His priests and Samuel was among those who called on His name. They called upon the Lord and He answered them. And He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Amen? Wow, what a great psalm. In the Old Testament, God demanded holiness. Through Moses, God said that you shall be, not you ought to be, you might want to think about becoming, but you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Listen. Listen, we're created in the image of God. Created in His image, we are called, we are called to cultivate the holiness of God's character in our lives. We're called. Created in His image, we are called to cultivate the holiness of God's character in our lives. Let's have a little fun with this. We're going to play with our cell phones in church. It's okay, nobody's going to be in trouble. Get your cell phones out. Everybody get your cell phones out. No, seriously, this will be, this will be great. Your, yours is in your car? Okay, here. I have mine. Yeah, I brought that just in case somebody in the front. Will. No, not, you can do whatever you want. But no password. I have nothing to hide. Put the phone to your ear because God is calling you right now. Put the phone to your ear. This is a phone call from God. Seriously. Listen. God is saying to you through this phone, He just called you, Right? Created in my image, you are called. I am calling you to cultivate the holiness of my character in your life. Put your phones down. Now you hold on to that. If I just called you, God called you and said, Leslie, you are called. I'm calling you to make sure that you're cultivating my character of holiness in your life. And then God stops talking and says, what do you have to say to that? makes it a little different, doesn't it? Because we're called. God has called us to cultivate the character of His holiness. As if He called us on the phone and says, Leslie, we need to chat. I'm calling you to make sure you're cultivating the holiness of my character in your lives. How's that going? Can I have my phone back? No. Thanks. Thanks for doing that. We're called to holiness. God's called each one of us 
you're called to cultivate the character of my holiness in your life. How's that going? I suppose we can lie to God. I'm not sure that's going to get us anywhere. We're not going to fool Him. We can fool a lot of other people, but we can't fool our Lord. Which is why we have to be immersed in His Word to see if we're cultivating holiness and we're purging the sinful stuff and grasping on to the things that make us holy. Look at Numbers 15. Book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 39 through 41 says this, It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do all the commandments of the Lord, to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you have prostituted, you've been cheating on me, you played the harlot, so that you remember to do all of my commandments and to be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Turn to Psalm 15. Turn to Psalm 15. You were just in Psalm 99. Turn a little to your left. Psalm 15. It's just five verses. David, the psalmist, says this. He says, O Lord, who, God, who then may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And then he proceeds to say, He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear God. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be what? Will never be shaken. Not will not be shaken that often. Not will mostly have victory. Will never be shaken. When we take seriously a life of holiness, we cannot be shaken. And when we are, that means that something's gone awry or askew. I think those are the right words. I don't know. What a great promise to us. We can go through these challenging journeys of life and not be shaken. Amen? The New Testament Greek word for holiness signifies an inner state of freedom from moral fault and a relative harmony with the moral perfection of God. We should, be, we should have a relative harmony with the moral perfection of God. Words in the New Testament like God-likeness or godliness captures its meaning. That, you know, Jane is such a godly woman. John is such a godly man. He has God-likeness or godliness is a characteristic of his. That's what it means to be holy in the New Testament sense. It also speaks, though, listen of a separation, not just from the profane, but also a dedication to the service of God. So it's not just to be holy and have God-likeness and then hide in a corner. It means to serve our God and to serve His purposes. Amen? That was our detour. Now we're going to get into our text. Let me give you the outline for our text. 
we have the first few verses is about the hall. They got all the silver and gold and they got to haul it to Jerusalem. And then they got to hand that stuff off. And that's in verses 31 through 34. Once they do, they've made the journey and they go and they worship the Lord. So that's the humbling. Let's look at the hall. Go back to Ezra 8, starting in verse 24. Then I set apart... Uh, it's actually 24 people here in verse 24, believe it or not. I set apart 12 of the leading priests... Because Sherebiah and Hashabiah are Levites. So you have 12 of the leading priests, and I also set apart Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and with them 10 of their Levite brothers. So there's 24 people there. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold to bring to God when they got to Jerusalem. Verse 26, I weighed out 650 uh, talents of silver, uh, silver utensils worth 100 talents and 100 gold talents, and 20 gold bowls worth 100 derricks and two utensils of fine, shiny bronze. And then I said to them, you priests, you Levites are holy and the utensils are holy. Bring it to God. Verse 29, watch and keep them until you weigh them when you get to Jerusalem. Verse 30, so the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and gold and they went to Jerusalem. So the tally, if you're taking a tally, we have 12. See, when it starts off, then I set apart, that's what the word holy means. Right? To cut, to set apart. So I set apart 12 priests and 12 Levites. So that's the set apart men. 12 priests and 12 Levites. And then you have the set apart treasure in verses 26 and 27 where you have the 650 talents of silver. Does anybody know how many pounds that is? 650 talents of silver. It's 50 thousand pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. That could come in handy. A hundred talents of silver utensils. That's another 7,500 pounds. 7,500. And then you have a hundred talents of gold. That's another 7,500 pounds of gold. And then 20 gold bowls that weigh about 19 pounds. And then you have these two bronze utensils. One scholar gives the estimate of this treasure. Check this out. He declared that it would represent, this, this hall here, would represent the annual income of somewhere between 100,000 men to 500,000 men. Let's do that today's numbers. Let's just say the average income is 50 grand. I don't know. It's just a number I can work with. That means that the hall, has anybody done the math yet, is between how many and how many dollars? Huh? Five billion to $25 billion is in their possession. $5 billion to $25 billion. You'd think there'd be more Levites and priests going, hey, maybe I can watch that, maybe skim a little off the top. Nobody would even notice. Wow. $5 billion to $25 billion. Look at Ezra 8.21, which we discussed last week. Remember when they gathered? Look at 8, uh, verse 21 of chapter 8. Then I proclaimed the fast at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us. Of course, they're about to haul anywhere from $5 billion to $25 billion worth of stuff a long way. Yeah, I'd be praying also. I'd be calling a fast as well. So you have this handoff. 
You have his handoff in verses 31 through 34. Let's read those. So we journeyed to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us. No wonder they worshipped when they got there. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. And so we came to Jerusalem and we remained there three days. And on the fourth day, we turned all that stuff in to these guys that were listed here. And verse 34 says, Everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded. This journey to Jerusalem, do you recall how many miles it was from Babylon back to Jerusalem? Does anybody remember? 900 miles on foot. 900 miles on foot. Do you remember how long it took? Four months. Four months, 900 miles. And it says in verse 31 that the good hand of God protected them and their possession for how many of those miles? All 900. And how many of those months? All four months. And so Ezra thanks the Lord as this dangerous route from Babylon to Palestine was plagued with bands of thieves and robbers. And what it tells us is this, is that what our God starts, He what? He finishes. The journeys He sends us on, He'll make sure we get there. Revelation 22, verse 13, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He'll get us there. He'll get us there. He'll get us there. He will get you there wherever you think you can't get to. He will get you there. He'll get you there. The journeys that He calls us to and the journeys that He sends us on, He will deliver us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes along the way. Here's what's interesting about verse 31. Verse 31 doesn't say if they were attacked and were protected from the attack or if they were free from the attack. It doesn't say because it doesn't matter. Because the Lord does what? He does both. He does both. He can deliver us from the enemy that's present or prevent the presence of the enemy. It's not for us to figure that out. It's for us to keep our eyes on the one who protects us. But there will be the hand of the enemy and ambushes along the way. We've all experienced them. There will be ambushes along the way. The hand of the enemy. But we just continue to focus on a holy God. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3 says this, But now, says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, His people, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Listen, it doesn't say if, when. When you pass through the waters, I will be there with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. Nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Hebrews 13 similarly says the same thing. And I, I, I don't know if you guys know this. I think I've mentioned this before. When you see all caps in the New Testament, it's referring to Old Testament Scripture to show the continuity of God's character. I will never desert you, 
nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Hmm. Do we know and serve the God that was described in these last two verses that we looked at in Isaiah and Hebrews? Do we know and serve that God? See, the key to all this story in Ezra is that the people were fulfilling God's purposes. That's the key. We must not miss that. They were fulfilling what God had called them to do. That's the key. And so if we're not experiencing deliverance from the enemy and his ambushes, perhaps it's because our purposes are being pursued and not his. Because he has to remain true to his word. Our third stanza, the humbling, verses 35 and 36, when they show up and they, and they do these offerings, these, these 12 bulls to represent uh, the 12 nations of Israel and the 12 male goats. And then it says in verse 36 that uh, they delivered the king's edicts, King Artaxerxes, to the king's leaders in that area, and they supported God's people in the house of God. The first thing that they did when they got to Jerusalem was worship God. For those of us who love God, the first response before, during, and after any project such as this must be humble worship before our God. And that's what Ezra did. They worshiped before they went, they worshiped while they went, and they worshiped when they got there. A sense, a, a, a position of humility before God. And if you recall from last week, being humble before God reveals our spiritual dependence upon Him and our acknowledgement that He is in control and not us. These 12 burnt offerings and 12 sin offerings here in verse 35 represent the 12 tribes of Israel. These offerings reveal their acknowledgement and worship of a holy God and their acknowledgement and confession of their own sin. Romans 3, if you have time to look at that later, please do so. Romans 3 assures us that our God loves us and forgives us for sure. Yet it also clearly reveals that we are all sinners that must be atoned for sacrificially. And that's what's happening in verse 36, and that's what he talks about in Romans 3. And that's what Christ did for us, was atoned for our sins sacrificially. No doubt that this faithful scribe Ezra was a huge part in this reality check because he was a man of God's Word, and God's Word reminded the people of their sin and their need for repentance and God's favor when we do so. The Lord's Word guided His people to a proper and acceptable and unified worship in verse 36. So that's the text. And now, here's the big puzzle pieces all coming together. Listen. Consider that this story, these verses 24 to 36, consider this. This story, this event, is a parable of the Christian life. These verses, these 13 verses, are a parable of what it means to follow our Lord. We are on a difficult and dangerous journey to heavenly Jerusalem. Right? And the Lord has committed to us something. He's committed His treasure to us. Look at verse 28. We've established God's holiness and it says, And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. Guard my treasure because the treasure is also holy. Our task is to protect what God has given to us 
and to be ready to give a good account of our stewardship when we get to the end of the journey, which is what these men had to do. They had to give a good account of their stewardship. It's beautiful. Look at this. It's so emphasized in our text. Look at verse 25. The key word all through all this, this accountability, this stewardship, is verse 25, and I weighed out to them. And we see it in verse 26, thus I weighed. And we see it also in verse 29, watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priest. And we see it in verse 30, so the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver. And we see it also in, in verse 33, on the fourth day, uh, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God. And then we see it twice in verse 34. Everything was numbered and weighed and all the weight was recorded at that time. Is that just a beautiful picture? It's an amazing picture of our journey with God. That we are all facing a heavenly Jerusalem and we have been entrusted with something that's very near and dear to God. His treasure, His word, His church, His purposes. It's our responsibility as we set our face to the heavenly Jerusalem. And what I love, look at verse 30. Oh, so the priests and the Levites, what's the next word say? Accepted that responsibility. When we turn our face to the Lord, when He rescues us from Egypt, we accept the responsibility to guard His treasure. We accept that responsibility. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and the love which are in Christ. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. God's Word is so important to Him. And so He entrusts it to us, the church. So we exist to protect God's treasure and to multiply His treasure and to introduce His treasure to others. So the Lord also expects us to invest and increase the treasure and not just guard it. And Jesus has a parable about that which we don't have time to get into. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, Church, you are chosen. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy people for God's own possession so that you and I may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Is that just a great story? What a great parable for our lives in the Christian faith. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And while they're working their way up, I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us. And then our prayer team's available if you need prayer after service. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we... We just love You, Lord. We, we love how gracious You are to us and how tender You are to us and how You rescue us from the bondage that we're in. But God, You're holy. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And sometimes, Lord, we lose sight of the fact that You've called us to live holy lives as well because You've entrusted to us something that is a treasure to You. And we want to do that well. Lord, I pray that we would allow a, a, a checking under our hood of our holiness. That we can be honest with you and honest with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can continue on that path towards holiness. God, we love you. 
it's a privilege to be called your sons and daughters and heirs to your throne. You're so good to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.